Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. If you're reading from the Bible from the back of the church, this passage begins on page 1078. John chapter 21, verses 15 to 25. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. church family, guests who are visiting with us. I just want to greet those who are joining us online. My name is John Hayward. I'm the associate pastor, and I'll be leading us in our study of God's Word this morning. It's my great privilege to be doing that. Before we start that, let's have the children aged, yeah, some are already running out. You know it's time. Three to age three to third grade, skedaddle. As long as your parents say it's okay. The rest of us will take a moment and ask the Lord to speak to us today through his word. Father, what a joy it's been for my heart already and soon for all of our hearts to be led in worship, delight in you, to have our minds and hearts turn upward. Lord, with our minds tuned, we now want to ask you to speak to us. We're thankful that you are a speaking God. You've not left us alone to figure 
figure out what life is like or who we are in relationship to you. You've spoken clearly through your word. I pray now that by your spirit, you would take the words from your book, apply them to our heart, in ways that would be transformational for us, that we would look more and more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. As we look into God's word this morning, our focus is going to be on a short but powerful command that the apostle Peter is given by Jesus in John chapter 21 two times. First, in verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And then more emphatically, in verse 22, Jesus says, you follow me. This command is given to Peter, but it's not just for Peter. It's for everyone who calls himself or herself a Christian. In John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. He says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And then in chapter 12, verse 26, he asserts, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. So carefully, thoughtfully, faithfully following Jesus is not an optional activity. For a special group of highly devoted Christians. It's a requirement for all Christians. Kyle Eidelman is a pastor in Louisville. And several years ago, he wrote a book entitled, Not a Fan. Becoming a completely committed follower of Jesus. And as the title suggests, in his book, he contrasts being a fan with being a follower. I didn't know this was coming on Super Bowl Sunday, but this is a perfect illustration for Super Bowl Sunday. He defines a fan as, quote, an enthusiastic admirer. And here's what he says about a football fan. We all know football fans. He's the guy who goes to the game with no shirt and a painted chest. He's got a signed jersey on his wall at home. He's got multiple former shippers on his car. But he's never in the game. He never breaks a sweat or takes a hard hit. He yells and he cheers, but there's nothing really required of him. There's no sacrifice that he has made. Eileen goes on to explain that that same thing happens in our church. That some people can come week after week as mere fans of Jesus. Sunday mornings are exciting. They're enthusiastic admirers. They like hearing about Jesus. They might like singing about Jesus. But then throughout the week, how they spend their time, how they spend their money, how they talk, how they treat people, especially people they disagree with, what they live for, none of those things demonstrate commitment to honor Christ or reflect his character. Simply put, they aren't followers of Jesus. Friends, what about you? Do your words, do your actions, desires, priorities indicate that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Or would an honest evaluation of them Suggest perhaps you're only a fan. 
In John's Gospel, Jesus' earthly ministry begins with him saying to Philip in chapter 1, verse 43, follow me. And now at the very end of John's Gospel, in the same instructions given to the scene in John chapter 21 takes place by the Sea of Galilee, just a few weeks after Jesus' resurrection. The disciples had been out fishing all night. They didn't catch anything. A stranger from the beach says, hey, cast it down the other side of the boat. They do, and they quickly have this enormous haul of fish, and that enables them to recognize that guy on the beach is not a stranger. That's Jesus. They finally drag themselves, their boat full of fish, their boat to shore, and Jesus has breakfast ready for them. After breakfast, Jesus engages Peter in conversation. In the first part of that conversation, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Three times Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Three times Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. As Pastor Gordon explained last week, there's nothing more important to us, about us than who or what we love. Because there's a necessary connection between what we love and how we live. One effect of loving Jesus is feeding his sheep, caring for his people. Another effect of loving Jesus, the one we think about this morning, is a willingness to follow him wherever he leads. Okay, so John chapter 21, let's take note of four principles that we should observe as we seek to follow Jesus. And just as a warning, the first two are tough. The second two get a little more encouraging. So just buckle up and hang on. Principle number one. Follow Jesus even though it means death. Follow Jesus even though it means death. After telling Peter for the third time, feed my sheep, Jesus continues in verse 18 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself. And walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said, Follow me. At the time of this conversation, Peter is a relatively young man, maybe in his early 30s, late 20s. He's apparently quite strong because, according to verse 11, he hauls this net full of 153 large fish to shore all by himself. However, as Jesus foretells what will happen to him in the future, he honestly predicts that when he's an old man, he will be executed. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will bring you where you do not want to go. This reference to stretching that Jesus is making here, this reference, is to what would happen when the horizontal cross beam of the cross was placed on the neck and shoulders of the condemned criminal, and he was forced to carry that cross beam to the place of execution. Now, John does not want us to miss that this is what Jesus intends, and what he meant, because he adds parenthetically in verse 19, this Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Jesus is telling Peter, a day is coming when you will be executed. Church history confirms that that's what happened. Ancient historian Eusebius writes in the early 300s 
that Paul was beheaded in Rome, and Peter likewise was crucified under Nero. We have nice crosses in our church. Some people wear crosses as jewelry, so we, we kind of forget just what the cross represented. Crucifixion was a torturous, humiliating form of execution. Victims were stripped, beaten, and their naked bodies were nailed to a cross in a public place where they died an agonizing death that could take many hours as they slowly suffocated. In verse 19, verse 18, Jesus informs Peter that he's going to die this way. And then, immediately after making that dreadful prediction, the next thing he says to Peter, follow me. So his point is, follow me even if it means death by crucifixion. That's disturbing. That must have been disturbing for Peter to hear. That's disturbing for our ears to hear. But we should realize that Jesus actually gives a very similar instruction to all of his disciples. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In his discipleship, as he followed Jesus, Peter would have to literally take up a wooden cross beam and carry it to his site of execution. In Luke chapter 9, when Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after him, he must take up his cross, he's not referring specifically or only to a physical death of martyrdom, but rather a death through self-denial. If anyone wishes to come after him, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. So Jesus is using crucifixion as a vivid, surprising, startling symbol of dying to ourselves. If he were to say it in our culture, he might say something like, take up your electric chair and follow me. If we had a big electric chair strapped up to the front of that building, when people walked in here, they would wonder what in the world are these people up to. What we're up to is the cross of Jesus Christ. What it means for our salvation, what it means for our discipleship. The cross is first and foremost a reminder to us always of what Jesus did to secure our salvation. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He paid the death penalty our sins deserve so we might be forgiven of all our sins and welcomed in God's presence forever. Praise God for what was done on the cross. It's the sole basis of our salvation. We must never lose sight of that. However, in addition, the cross also provides us with the model for how we are supposed to live as Christians. Peter would write years later, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Christ suffered for you on the cross, leaving you, all of you, an example for you to follow in his steps. So the death of Christ on the cross, we see both a sacrifice for our sins and an example for how we are to live. In his classic book, Cost of Discipleship, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, The cross is laid on every Christian. 
As we embark upon discipleship, we spread ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. It meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To take up our cross and die to ourselves requires an intentional daily choice. Because the default setting of the human heart is to be turned inward on itself. I want what I want when I want it. And if you give it to me, I'm very happy. But if you don't give it to me, there's going to be trouble. We all live that way. That's the natural dynamic that's happening in our life. And if you don't believe that, just watch a bunch of two and three-year-olds decide who gets the best toys. Everybody's after what they want. Better yet, more convicting, think about the last relational conflict you had. The last kiss. You said something, you did something that was unloving or unkind. In that moment, you were pursuing a self-centered desire. You wanted respect or love or attention, or intimacy, or approval, recognition, agreement with your ideas, help with a project. But whatever it was, the other person wasn't giving it to you, and that's why you got upset with them. I'm not suggesting that we should not ask family members and friends for what we need and what we want. I think that's good relational, uh, build good relationships to be able to have open communication. However, when we go from asking for something to demanding something, we're no longer denying ourselves. We're not taking up our cross. We're not following Jesus. Love yourself. Stand up for yourself. Express yourself. Indulge yourself. These come as natural to us as breathing. Disciples of Jesus, we're called to do something radically different. Deny yourself. Take up your cross, symbol of death, and follow Jesus. And the reason we do that, the reason we're able to do that and want to do that, is because Jesus has died for us. We're just following in his footsteps. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The love of Christ controls us. That is, his love for me has a controlling influence on how I live. Having through this, that one died for all, Christ died for us, therefore all died, and he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. As Christians, we are following a nail-pierced Savior, someone who's died for us, and now he calls us to die to ourselves so that we can live for him and for the good of others. In your life, in your relationships, at home, at work, at church, in the community, where might Jesus be calling you to die to yourself as you follow him? Follow Jesus even though it means death. That's one principle for following him. A second principle 
is follow Jesus without comparing your life circumstances to those of others. Follow Jesus without comparing your life circumstances to those of others. As Peter hears this distressing news that following Jesus will lead to his torturous death, he wonders what's going to happen to his friend John, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Now, that phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is John's designation for himself. John felt loved by Jesus. That's how he identified himself. So you should envision Peter and Jesus walking along the beach. John's not too far behind them. So Peter turns. He sees the disciple whom Jesus loved follow them. The one who had asked, who is the Lord who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, when he saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? The gist of Peter's question is, if I have to die a horrible death on the cross, is John going to have to suffer too? Jesus' blunt reply is, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Basically, what Jesus says to Peter, if we were to paraphrase it, is, Mind your own business. What I choose to do in another person's life is none of your concern. Peter is playing a dangerous game that I think we all play. The game of comparison. He's wondering if, if John's life might in some way be better or easier than his would be. Commandment number 10 of the 10th commandment states, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, his BMW, or anything that's in the margin that belongs to your neighbor. The implication of this command is that some of our neighbors will have some things that are better than ours. Personally, maybe they're more attractive. Maybe they're more talented. Maybe they're more successful. Perhaps they have a better job. More money. A seemingly more loving spouse. More successful children. They live in a bigger home. They take nicer vacations. They enjoy a happier, healthier life. And in those situations, it's easy to look longingly what our neighbor has and yearn for. But the 10th commandment says, don't do that. And so does Jesus. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Jesus gives us this warning because he knows that like Peter, we might be tempted to compare ourselves to others and long for what they have to the extent that in effect we're saying, oh, what about this man? What about this woman? Why does he have good health? Why struggle with sickness or disability? Why does she seem to have such a happy marriage while I'm burdened with a difficult marriage or no marriage at all? Why does this couple have a house full of kids and my spouse and I are childless? Why does he get to retire early and enjoy a life of leisure while I have to continue working a low-paying job? When we ask questions like these, Jesus is going to respond to us the same way he responded to Peter. What is that to you? You follow me. 
verse 19, Jesus tells Peter, follow me, and the you is implied. But in verse 22, as a point of emphasis, the second person pronoun, you, is included. Jesus is urging Peter to not look at John, not be concerned about John at all. Rather, evaluate yourself. Don't wonder what I'm doing with John, right? Remember what I've called you to do. You, Peter, follow Jesus. Over the next several decades, both Peter and John faithfully followed Jesus. But as they did, he led them down different paths. Peter would become a preacher and a leader of the early church. John would become a writer, more a man of action, uh, of word, of thoughts than of action. Peter would die an agonizing death on the cross. John, from all that we know from church history, died of old age. These men were gifted with different abilities. They faced different challenges. They were given different opportunities. They were used in different ways. And the same thing could be said of us. Which is why we should follow Jesus without comparing ourselves to others. We all know people more talented, privileged, prosperous, and successful than we are. But so what? That doesn't change what we're supposed to do. What I'm called to do, and what you're called to do, is to follow Jesus wherever he leads us. The Apostle Paul understood this in Acts chapter 20. He's headed to Jerusalem. And he's been told on his journey there, several different stops, that he's going to face persecution when he gets to Jerusalem. And his response in Acts 20 verse 24 is, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I might finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord. I don't care for godly ten. I don't care if I have to suffer. I want to finish my course. Each of us has a unique course. That course might include some rocky terrain, some abrupt, confusing turns, some steep mountains, some dark valleys. But it's the course that Jesus Christ, in his goodness, in his wisdom, in his love, has chosen for us and is leading us on. And we will finish that course not by looking around at others and wondering what their life is like compared to ours, but rather looking to Jesus and following that brings us to principle number three for following Jesus, which is that we should follow Jesus with our attention fixed on him and what he has done. Follow Jesus with your attention fixed on him and what he has done. In verse 19, after informing Peter that when he's always going to be executed, Jesus gives the command, follow me. And then in verse 22, after he tells Peter that none of your business will happen to John, he issues the command more emphatically, you, Peter, follow me. Jesus is seeking to get Peter to focus his thoughts on him. Don't worry about how your life's going to end. Don't worry if the path has some painful moments to it. And don't spend your time comparing yourself to other people. Keep your attention focused on me. The author of Hebrews gives this instruction, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He urges his fellow believers, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Unfortunately, it is all too easy 
for Christians to think they are following Jesus when they aren't really even looking at Jesus. They might think of Christianity as a set of rules to obey. And so they try to follow Jesus' commands, but they aren't actually following him. Or they think of Christianity primarily as a theological system that they work hard to understand. And perhaps they do understand. They have this Christian worldview that they can explain to other people. But again, they aren't really thinking very much about Jesus. Or, as happened to me as a young Christian, I spent lots of time, hours and hours and hours, advancing the cause of Christ through evangelism and discipleship programs that were part of the campus ministry I was involved in. But in the process, I spent very little time meditating on the person of Christ. Now, obeying what Christ commands, understanding what he teaches, working to advance his cause and work are vitally important. None of them should be neglected. However, we need to realize it's possible to do all of those things without having our attention fixed on Jesus. I can tell you, I didn't specifically talk to Pastor Gordon about this, but he and I have referenced this in, in previous conversations. Our desire, our hope, our yearning, our prayer, the work that we do in the Bible is all directed toward helping our whole church have its eyes fixed on Jesus. Programs are not that important. Pastors are not that important. Music is not that important. Jesus is important. And if we keep our eyes fixed on him, all of us collectively keep our eyes fixed on him, our church is going to be healthy, and our individual lives are going to be healthy. So brothers and sisters, more than anything, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus again and again and again. As we seek to follow Jesus, with our attention fixed on him, it's very helpful to regularly call to mind the great things that he has done. At the end of John chapter 20, John states the purpose for his book very clearly. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other things in the sight, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, but these things have been written so that you might believe. In the, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing might apply in his name. We get to the end of chapter 21, the very last verse in the book, and John has said something similar. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were all of them written, I suppose, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John wants us, his readers, to be thinking about all the things that Jesus did. Because as we think about the things that Jesus did, that gives us confidence to believe in him, to trust him, and to follow him. And certainly it's safe to assume the same thing would be true for Peter. Toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had an encounter with Peter that's recorded in Mark chapter 1, which says, that passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw, Jesus saw Simon, Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. They are fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They're at the same location, the Sea of Galilee. They're involved in the same activity, fishing, and the same command is given, follow me. But 
Mark chapter 1 takes place, oh, at least two years, maybe up to three years, it's hard to figure out the exact sequence, at least two years before the scene in John chapter 21. And in those intervening years, Peter got to see a lot of the things that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. For example, Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 39 years. He multiplied a few loaves of bread, a couple of fish, and enough food to feed 5,000 people. He walked on a storm-tossed lake. He gave sight to a man who had been born blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And after he died, an excruciating sacrificial death on the cross, he came back in a gloriously resurrected body. Between Mark chapter 1 and John chapter 21, Jesus has not changed in his character or his ability. What has changed is Peter's knowledge of Jesus, who he is, and what he's able to do. And with that greater knowledge of Jesus would come a greater motivation and confidence in following Jesus. Pastor Gordon made the point last week that one of the reasons that we don't love Christ more, we don't grow in our love for Christ, is because we don't reflect enough on how much we've been loved by Christ. And in a similar way, we can say that one of the reasons we don't follow Christ as faithfully and confidently as we could or should is we don't reflect enough on who he is and what he's done. And therefore, we aren't convinced that he's worthy of being followed, especially when he leads us down a difficult path. So friends, again, do all you can to keep your mind and heart and attention fixed on Jesus. As you open up the word, as you read, be asking the Spirit day after day, all the time, to show you new truth about who Jesus is from the pages of God's Keep your attention focused on Jesus, remembering that he is the Lamb of God who died for the sins of his people. He's the bread of life who nourishes his people. He's the good shepherd who cares for his people. He's the vine who produces fruit in his people. He's the great high priest who intercedes on behalf of his people. He's the bridegroom who delights in his people. Jesus is the God-man who can sympathize with the weakness of his people. He's the seed of the woman who crushes Satan, the enemy of God's people. He's the ruler of waves who brings peace to his battered and fearful people. He's the Lord of the church who is present among his people. And Jesus Christ is King of kings who is returning for his people. Is that fourth about Jesus Christ's return to glory to God. Follow Jesus in anticipation of his return. Follow Jesus in anticipation of his return. After Jesus warns Peter that he's going to be led away to execution result, and Peter responds, and then what about John? Jesus rebukes Peter, telling him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now we could respond to Peter's question about John simply saying, what is that to you? You follow me. But instead, Jesus includes a reference to the return. If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? John 
adds in the next verse, so the saying was spread among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that you remain until I come, what is that to you? So the implied promise given in verse 22, repeated in verse 23, is that Jesus Christ is coming back. And what's implied in this passage is explicitly stated by Jesus on the night before his death. John chapter 14, verse 3, he tells his disciples, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The day of Christ's return is going to be one of unimaginable joy for Christians. Because at long last, we will finally get to behold our Savior Jesus Christ in all of his radiant glory. No more living by faith. We get to live by sight. And as we behold him, we will be transformed into his very likeness. John asserts this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Paul expressed that idea in Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, on that day, we will receive a resurrection body like Jesus had. A body that doesn't get sick, doesn't have defects, doesn't wear out, doesn't need glasses or dentures or canes, and never, ever dies. And there's something better than that. Not only will our bodies be our souls we will never again have a proud, jealous, lustful thought. We will never speak angry, manipulative words. We'll never do anything unkind. We will always love God and love others perfectly. When Jesus Christ returns, we will be done forever with sin, sorrow, suffering, and death. Whatever hardships we're experiencing now, and there are people in our church who are experiencing very difficult hardships. However painful they are, however discouraging they are, they're temporary. The happy thought that will help us persevere in following Christ is remembering that he's coming back. And one day he's going to make everything right. As we think about Jesus Christ coming back, something else that helps us persevere in following him is remembering that when he returns, he's going to be evaluating our lives and rewarding us for the good things we've done. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one of us might receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether it's good or evil. Friends, what this means is that every single one of us individually, not as couples, not as families, not with our parents, not with our spouse, all by our onesies, will stand before the king and creator of the universe and give an account for how we live. That day is coming. For Christians, that day should not terrify us. 
Because it will not be a day of condemnation. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. If we belong to Christ, our sins are forgiven. We are granted access into the presence of God and into his eternal kingdom because of Jesus and nothing else. Praise the Lord. So for us, that day of judgment would be one of not condemnation, but of evaluation. As God examines our life and rewards us for the good things that we've done. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. It will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus says, give your life away. Serve the needy. Serve the poor. Serve people who do nothing for you. Because somebody's watching. God's watching. And on the day he comes back, he's going to reward you for all the things you've done to care for those who are needy. Paul makes an even more sweeping statement. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7. He's talking to slaves here. Render service with goodwill to your master as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. That is an all-exclusive promise. In his book, uh, Come Lord Jesus, John Piper comments on this verse. We will be stunned on that day with the overwhelming grace of God in rewarding us for every good thing we've ever done in our life of faith. Let this sink in. Every good thing you have done, absolutely every one, is written down in heaven so that it can be duly rewarded on the day of Christ. All our good works, all our service, all our giving to advance God's kingdom, all our sacrifice, all our laying our lives down, God sees, God notices, God remembers, God rewards. The 16th century Church of Lord Martin Luther is purported to have said, I can't find where he said this, but so many people tell me he said this, I believe he said this. <laughs> there are two days on my calendar. This day and that day. Martin Luther sought to live each day of his earthly life in light of the day of Christ's return. And friends, so should we. Because there are many times when it doesn't seem like it's worth the thought of Christ. It's too hard. It's too sacrificial. The, the path is too difficult. It's too confusing. I, I, I don't understand what I'm doing. I, I don't seem to be appreciated by anyone else. What, why am I doing this? I'm doing it because of Jesus. Because he's laid down his life for me and because he's come back to reward me. From the vantage point of the day of judgment, when we're all standing before Jesus Christ, we're going to be glad for every earthly sacrifice we made. Just all of us. Follow Jesus in anticipation of his return. Follow Jesus with your attention fixed on him who he is and what he's done. Follow Jesus without comparing the right circumstances to other people. Follow Jesus even though it requires dying to yourself.
Are you following Jesus? Or are you a fan of Jesus? We are so thankful for your word. We're thank so thankful for its powerful lives. We're thankful, especially that it tells us about your son Jesus. Lord, would you give us all eyes of faith to see, behold, the light of your son, and then follow him wholeheartedly? Lord, I pray for all of us here. Represent several hundred different sets of circumstances. The paths are leading us on are different and varied. And I pray for all of us that we would, by the help of your spirit, by the light of your son, follow him all the day long. In Jesus' name.